The European Union, circa 2000, 2004, really looked like a serious challenger to the United States. To understand geopolitics, you must have the freedom to be honest. The More Freedom Foundation podcast. How are you this week, Rob? No complaints, no complaints. How are things with you, Rory? Things are all right. I got to see Oppenheimer this week. Uh, what'd you think? I thought it was very good. I always just find it funny how many Irish actors there seems to be, but he does knock it out of the park. Oh, yeah. How, oh, his this accent is, a great, is superb. This is a great question. How do I pronounce his first name? Is it is it is it Killian Murphy or Cillian Murphy? Oh, Killian, Killian, Murphy. Killian, Killian Murphy. Yeah, that's his mm-hmm. that's his name. Plays plays Oppenheimer. Yeah, and I think he's a he's been on a strict diet to look quite gaunt for the film. Yeah, I, I saw some kind of promotional thing where the his co-stars were like, "Yeah, well, we're doing prom, we're doing promos," and I saw saw Killian eat for the first time, uh, which is uh, quite <laughs> no, I something. I think you'll like it. There'll be lots of politicians that were all over my head. It's a bit more of a political thriller than I think a lot of people are expecting. Hmm. Well, is there at least a big explosion in it? There's a big explosion, yeah. Okay, well, I'm happy. I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> no, I've, I've been reading just really, like, very adulatory reviews, uh, so I'm excited for that. Um, so today, I want to talk about another interaction between uh, the United States and Europe. Yes. Uh, specifically, I want to talk about uh, something that I see as Europe's struggle for independence from the United States. And I see it as, frankly, a, a failed failed struggle. Uh, it failed uh, in February 2022 when uh, Vladimir Putin decided to invade Ukraine. Uh, I think that really ended something that's been going on intensively for the past 20 years, but actually in some ways has been going on for 50 years. Uh, and that is the European struggle for independence from the United States. So where would you like to start? Where do you feel that you first noticed the EU not really finding its feet and still being sort of the underling to the United States? Well, I think that's been a huge dynamic since World War II. Uh, I think there's no question in anybody's mind that uh, Europe was tremendously reliant on the United States in that whole rebuilding process after World War II. There really wasn't much. I think a lot of the folks who were still in power in Western Europe were just absolutely terrified of communism at that point, which was appealing to a lot of the publics uh, there. Uh, it was seen they as were, very uh, anti-imperialist at the time? Well, they were the visible, the most visible victors of World War II. And even in the UK, the idea that the, the suffering populations after these world wars were, were due uh, some more power and some more respect was very powerful. Uh, so, yeah, uh, for the first 30 years or so after uh, World War II, uh, Western Europe was tremendously dependent on the United States, or rather the elites in Western Europe were tremendously dependent on the United States to maintain uh, their sort of, their non-communistness. And actually, I do want to, I think that's important, but let's put a pin in that. I want to talk about why, in particular, this uh, has been bothering me, uh, and it actually gets to Angela Merkel. Okay, well, what's she done now? <laughs> well, that's the thing, is I don't actually think she's done much. I think that I've, I've heard... 
So rather, I think she's done an extraordinary amount, but I think she's earned on two counts uh, a lot of undeserved hatred. Uh, I think uh, the Mama most Merkel. Op- yes, Mama Mitte. M- 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 I that. I will never pretend to be able to pronounce German. Uh, so Merkel was in charge of Germany for like forever, and probably the most controversial thing she did that she was most complained about for up until 2022 anyway, was let a whole bunch of Syrians move to Germany. Sort of instantly. I think over a million. Yes, over a million. Uh, I think, and I think more and more people, I have always said, and I think more and more people are coming around to this decision that that was kind of a masterstroke. Actually, uh, labor is always a problem uh, and a growing problem for European countries. And she added a million people uh, to uh, mostly young people uh, to the labor structure of Germany. And those folks are being taught German, are joining the workforce, and they will they and their children will continue to do so, uh, shoring up Germany. So anyway, we don't want to do a podcast about that right now. Uh, the other thing that she's now really, really being castigated for is the extent to which she allowed... Germany to become reliant on Russian natural gas. And this is now becoming a piece of conventional wisdom that, oh, Angela Merkel's legacy is in tatters. Angela Merkel really, really screwed up by letting the Russians become so important to the German economy. I think that's wrong. I think that's kind of balderdash. I think that is actually misconstruing what the policy was. I think it was a failure for sure. Uh, I think it was a failed attempt to win independence from the United States. So this is a story that we'll be talking about today that is about oil and gas, but it's also about politics at the at the highest of levels. And it goes back to the 1970s. So this isn't just a Merkel thing. This is something that Western Europe and now, and in the post-Cold War era, all of Europe has attempted to do for about 50 years now, which is get out from under the United States. Uh, and I think... It's in this hour, despite the fact that the French are usually the most uh, uh, vociferous about this, uh, I think this is a German story uh, that we'll be talking about in this hour. Uh, just from De Gaulle to Macron, uh, I think Macron, didn't he famously call NATO brain dead? From time to time. Yeah, uh, he's constantly talking about how Europe needs its own defense architecture, Europe needs its own independence, this, this that, and the other thing. Uh, but actually, it's the German policy that I'm most interested in talking about today. The Well, historically, a lot of the, well, not so much America, but France and Britain and a lot of other European countries really didn't want Germany and Russia getting along because it's seen as like they could just take over the world because Germany has such incredible engineering and manufacturing. And then Russia just has so many raw materials. You know, it's gone back, what, two centuries? So they just always don't want them to get along. So I think they're kind of delighted at the moment because, you know, Russia's gone as horrendous as they can. Everyone despises them. Yes, I think that is a very, very important dynamic. And that has gone from in the post-World War II, certainly in the post-Cold War era, that has gone from being a British and a French concern, which it may still have been to an extent, to a U.S. concern. And I think that the United States has been, you know, in February of 2022, the United States could safely declare victory in that effort to keep the Germans and the Russians 
uh, from oh, getting together. Uh, and because the idea of getting um, this L- LPG, the liquefied gas, shipped over from America used to seem ridiculous, and now it's just a matter of fact. It's just what's happening. Uh, so <laughs> if we go back to the 1970s, something called Ostpolitik, uh, which became such a such a meme that it, it's it's been used uh, in a sort of German everywhere it's used. They talk about North Korea and South Korea. South Korea is doing Nordpolitik, which is another kind of way of saying detente, which was in the 1970s what uh, the U.S. and the West more generally was getting up to with uh, the Soviet Union, which was kind of a relaxing of things a bit. But there's a real parallel here to what happened in this century, though, uh, because Ostpolitik, it was not initiated uh, by the war in Vietnam, but the success and momentum that it eventually attained, I believe, had a lot to do with the war in Vietnam. Uh, By the 1970s, Western Europe was back on its feet. It was doing really gosh darn well. And the Christian Democratic Union, the conservative-leaning party that had been running West Germany uh, for 20 years or thereabouts for quite some time uh, was out of power. And we had a new guy, uh, Willie Bryant, and he was interested in openness towards East Germany. Uh, I think the argument at the time was, well, this will help them fall quicker. Uh, And I would argue that that was proven pretty, pretty handily. Uh, but this was also a source of some discomfort for people in Germany, for people in the United States. This was a, this was a real, real concern, but, uh, as is the case in the 21st century, really, really dumb U S actions provided a great impetus, uh, to this Ostpolitik. You had student uprisings across Europe in the sixties. Obviously Vietnam was not quite as much of a deal, uh, in, in Paris as it would have been as it was in on U.S. college campuses, but it was a pretty big deal. Uh, so Ostpolitik moved forward. By the early, late 60s, early 1970s, East Germany and West Germany didn't even have an agreement on what their border should be, what their relations should be, and all of that got sort of hashed out and settled in the early 1970s. Uh, and there began to be more serious state-to-state commercial Uh, political and social exchanges between East and West Germany and between the East and West more broadly. The Nixon administration, Kissinger, uh, famously, I think, yeah, consistently for both the Nixon and Ford administrations, Kissinger held on to his seat after uh, Nixon had to resign. We're for it. We're for detente. Uh, Carter was as well. Uh, The Reagan administration hated it. Really, really, really hated this idea that we were going to uh, ratchet down the tensions of the Cold War. But Europe was content, wanted to move forward with it. And of course, there was the tremendous carrot of Russian oil and gas. And this was, I think it started in 1972, 1973, thereabouts, uh, because of, I think it was actually a smaller oil crisis that didn't impact the United States in the late 60s. But then, of course, the big oil crisis of 1973 also impacted and Western Europe started buying uh, Russian Soviet oil and gas. And then by the mid-80s, I think it was sort of 85, 86, we got the first large pipelines, gas pipelines from the Soviet Union. Um, So not only was there the political benefit of 
reaching out, there was also very real economic benefits. And that's sort of when the oil and gas thing, I think it's worth saying, like, why would Europe want to be independent from the United States? Like, it's obviously nationalism, sovereignty, national pride is obviously something that uh, the Europeans got a little bit sick of in the 20th century. But I think even by the 1970s, they already were like, uh, we'd, we'd like our own self-determination back. We'd like to make our own decisions. We would like, oh, gee whiz, I don't know, now that we can feed ourselves again, we're not so excited about the idea that Washington, D.C. can uh, decide when the war that wipes out all of continental Europe happens. Um, you know, just basic. And de Gaulle uh, was, I think, the first really famous break with, uh, I think he briefly took France out of NATO entirely. Uh, I think France is, but pretty sure France is back in by now, but. It is now, yes. Yeah, yeah, but, <laughs> uh, but it had really tremendously important. Willy Brandt, more left-leaning, also was open to this idea of, of a little more independence. And European countries began to get this idea, even during the Cold War, when they were tremendously reliant on U.S. protection from the Soviet Union, they began to chafe under this and think it would be nice to be an independent country again. Who knows? And the thing is, they were also, again, uh, I guess that was a different episode we recorded earlier, but yeah, they were also right. Uh, I don't think you could have had a peaceful end of the Cold War without Ostpolitik. I think that the good cop, bad cop dynamic that was built up between uh, the U.S. and aspects of the European system in the 1970s and 1980s was really, really instrumental in bringing about a non-apocalyptic end to the Cold War. I don't think you would have had a Gorbachev without Ostpolitik. I don't think you would have had the, the, that miraculous, you know, the, but the German bureaucrat who's just like, well, I, or was it a Hungarian bureaucrat who was just like, well, I guess the border's open. And they're like, when is the border open? It's like, why not now? You know, like, like <laughs> it, you, you can't imagine any of that without Ostpolitik. Uh, and you know, it worked. The cold war ended and we were in this magical 1990s situation. I'm writing a book now uh, called American Empire, The First Hundred Years. And I really am just reading about the 1990s. It was just this near utopia. Uh, there were horrific things happening, of course, in the Balkans, Rwanda, uh, the Congo, and other places as well. But what was interesting is how many fewer horrific things were happening than were happening in the 1980s. 70s, 60s, 50s, 40s, and everything back to the beginning of human recorded history. And what's so amazing about the 1990s is that things were just sort of like getting better. Uh, there's this, I think there's this amazing clip in my head. Whenever I think of the 1990s, there's this clip, I think it's from a Democratic National Convention at some point in the mid-90s where like Hillary Clinton's doing the Macarena or something. I, da, 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 I think da, everybody da, was doing the Macarena yes, at the time. Yes, everybody's doing the Macarena. And that's just sort of the vision of the 1990s in my head. Uh, and really, it's, it's, it, was, it was pretty miraculous. Uh, but I think during, during the 1990s, Europe was like, cool, we're good. Like, so like, are the Americans ever leaving? Or like, are we ever gonna, like, I'd never expressed quite that clearly. But if you look at the way that the EU was developing 1993, we're like, that was the point 
at which the European communities, I think it was at the time, became the European Union. I mean, that is, so the, the, it was the Treaty of Rome as the European Coal and Steel Community. This goes back to the 1950s. In the 1990s, the European communities or whatever it was became more and more interested in taking on more and more of the aspects of a state, uh, the European Council, and is there, I think, is he even a president or what have you? Like, there's like a, but the European Parliament, the, mm-hmm. I mean, this is real, and most importantly, and not so successfully, I would argue, uh, or maybe successfully, uh, it's still there anyway, uh, the European currency. And in, this was being put in place in the 90s, put in the works, uh, and eventually came to fruition. And I think 2004, was that the massive Big Bang? We're like oh, well, for 12, the euro? No, for 12 new companies. Like yes, it was around com- 2004. Yeah, 2004, like this massive expansion. All of a sudden, Europe went from this sort of Western European hub, you know, sort of West Germany and West to that, uh, to this, and, you know, down to, to, to Greece and, and uh, Turk, Turkey, debatably. Uh, but it went to this all of Europe being one thing with its own like currency. The biggest country being added was Poland at the time. Yes, that was uh, that, and yeah, because that's the biggest. It's still the biggest Eastern European country that's in the EU, right? Technically, it's Central Europe, but yeah, the de- the borders of Europe's always a bit uh, weird. Indeed, but yeah, it was definitely the biggest at the time. Yeah, so all of a sudden in the 1990s. Europe is like very much a real thing. And I think that came very consciously out of an understanding that to compete in a world with the United States and a rising China, Europe had to unify and become a bigger thing. And I think that's a dynamic of the 1990s that is kind of forgotten is that the, and certainly the early aughts, the unified Europe that was presented in 2004 was a larger economic actor than the United States. That's over now. This was a real challenger and Europe was... Well, it, it's it, the GDP did overtake uh, America and then the economic world crisis happened. We're now seeing this twice now in 2008 and now from the 2020 crisis as well. The United States is bouncing back much more powerfully than Europe is. Well, America kind of, it had a bit of a dip and then kept on trucking, while the EU seems like it's almost like hitting an invisible line that it's only recovering from now. Yeah, it's a series of, uh, series of crises. The European Union, circa 2000, 2004, really looked like a serious challenger to the United States. I, this was, I think, a, a topic of some controversy. I think there were many Europeans who appreciated uh, the U.S. relationship, did not want to jeopardize it in any way, kind of liked the past, the vacation from history they'd gotten from the United States uh, and wanted to sort of just keep on keeping on and hopefully not antagonize the United States. And then George W. Bush was elected. Uh, and we had the war in Iraq. And I think that this is an era in U.S.-European relations relations that has ended, but I do think that if textbooks are written, 2003 to 2020, 2022 
should be a distinct era in U.S.-EU relations. Because I believe that from 2003, the U.S. invasion of Iraq, uh, there have been much more significant populations in Europe that have wanted some degree of independence from the United States, have wanted to be set free uh, from U.S. control. The proper way to look at what Angela Merkel and what uh, your other European leaders were doing with Vladimir Putin and Russia over the course of that 2003 to 2022 period was an attempt at independence from the United States. And I think that that is a failed pursuit. That is a pursuit that you know, doesn't look so great in the context of what what's unfolded. What's unfolded, but I think it was a valid effort uh, and I don't think should be used as a as a reason to sort of besmirch Angela Merkel. It does sound like Gerard Schroeder is legitimately kind of a kind of a creep. This is one of the chancellors before Merkel. I mean, he's like still trying to cash checks from Rosneft or something. Uh, yeah, he seems like I think it's okay to, 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 to strongly dislike him. But like in the context of and its European attempt to build what Gorbachev was talking about, the, the common European home. And this idea that if you interlaced German and Russian and, you know, because the Germans had become so much more important throughout the rest of Europe and through the Germans, all European interests to be interlaced with Russia in that way, then war would become an impossibility. And I think that that was a lot more possible than we give it credit. I think that without U.S. intervention specifically, uh, U.S. political crises specifically, uh, the, the perception uh, that Russia was involved in the U.S. election in 2016, I think that Europe could have been successful at that, could have been, maybe by 2016 it was too late. I think that Europe really did want and justifiably wanted a degree of independence from the United States that it was rational to pursue. Well, I think a few things it blames, it, you know, the EU blames itself on is its um, lack of investment when it came to computing. It was laid on it, so that was an area that America could just uh, accelerate away and Europe was left a bit stagnant. And then even some countries, you know, did invest and other ones kind of didn't really bother too much with the R&D. I think the Europe has been has failed to make a number of investments that it should have if it wanted to be independent. There's a kind of stultifying embrace that the United States has allowed Europe to sort of slumber in. It's like, we'll handle it. We'll handle the defense stuff. We'll handle this, that, and the other thing. And that has allowed Europe to just sort of kick back a little bit. And I think that Certainly not these years when everyone's still focusing more on the horrors in Russia and Ukraine, but I think in the years and decades to come, I think perhaps uh, people will regret that more. The degree to which Europeans just sort of let the U.S. continue to run things. Because by doing that, by signing over uh, to some degree and with some rebellion, their Iran policy, to, uh, to some degree and with some rebellion, their Russia policy, to the United States uh, and with very little willingness, but just sort of no choice, Middle East policy over the United States, 
the EU has suffered mightily and will continue to suffer a lot more mightily than the United States will. Um, and I, I think those kinds of choices and the results are going to become clearer and clearer as time goes on. Do you think uh, Mercosur can help? Mercosur, but is that the Brazilian uh, EU? Is that the, uh, the yeah, South American? the South American equivalent, although Venezuela did get kicked out. Oh, dear. So Brazil, I... Argentina, um, Ecuador, and... Uh, <laughs> oh, it's, it's a little bit... I don't think Mercosur is going to be a, a big a big factor in helping uh, the EU out of its uh, dependence. But it's seen as like um, one of the biggest the trade deals on Earth. Oh, there's a Mercosur EU trade deal. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. It uh, was a. They finalized it in 2019, and then they fell out. A lot to do with Brazil's deforestation. So now Lula's back in, and he has you know cut down on deforestation massively. So mm -hmm. now he's back in. The deal might go ahead, but there's still a lot of uh, issues to iron out. Yeah, I don't think I don't think a trade deal is gonna is gonna do the trick. I think it's it's interesting. The problem Uruguay and Paraguay. <laughs> yeah, well, sorry, I forgot about Uruguay and Paraguay. That's going to be a game changer. They all add up. Yeah, Uruguay and Paraguay. The the the, the incredible demand for German goods is going to going to blow things out of the water. Well, yeah, that yeah. is the worry that they'll uh, Europe, European manufacturing will flood South America. So they're worried about the. I know Brazil has a very protectionist uh, car industry. <laughs> It seems to just make everything really expensive in Brazil, like computers and stuff have to have a certain percentage made in the country, which it I guess did. works if you're China, but I think it just makes things really awkward if you're Brazil. So it might uh, help free up their economy, but it's if it does go ahead, it can definitely shake things up. I think another issue Europe has is it doesn't have as nearly as many large companies as America. It seems to be made up mostly of small, medium and micro the Mittelstadt, right? The the famous German uh, uh, small companies. So I think the problem with European lack of a military component, a serious independent uh, political existence, is that these things become self-reinforcing. So Europe can get really excited about its engagement with Mercosur, but then they have to follow the lead of the Trump administration when the Trump administration says, oh, you know, um, we, we've endorsed a fake Venezuelan president. And most of Europe, I think most of Europe is now backed off of that, whereas the United States has, I'm not sure if the United States fully backed off of it or if the, uh, the actual Venezuelan opposition was like, okay, we're done with one, one the other. But Europe you know, wants to do this, these trades with Latin America, but then it's like, oh, and yeah, we've got to endorse everything in the United States, all these crazy things that the United States is doing in Latin America. And we've seen multiple times over the past couple of decades where uh, Europe has had to follow the U.S. lead to Europe's detriment. And it's interesting because some of this is cloaked in very, I think, real instincts to care about human rights it's a weapon. It is weaponized. I'm not saying these human rights concerns are real, but they are actively weaponized by the United States to keep Europe in line and keep Europe in line in ways that are detrimental to Europe creating an independent policy and independent trade linkages and independent 
approaches to things that could serve Europe. Uh, Europe is tremendously reliant on oil and gas, uh, imported oil and gas. Uh, China and India have done this amazing, amazing job capitalizing, playing one black market off of another uh, these past couple of years. They had been purchasing large amounts of black market Iranian oil and gas uh, for years, and now they've got a Russian black market to play off of it as well. It's amazing. Uh, but the Europeans can't do it. They can't, despite some early on attempts to uh, push back against the Trump administration's absurd treatment of Iran, uh, ripping up this incredibly favorable to the United States Iran nuclear deal. Europe initially was like, oh, we're pushing back against that. But then because this is less human rights, this is more sort of faux security interests. Uh, but it's got kind of the same vibe is because I Iran, the Europeans were eventually pressured into the idea that uh, Iran was somehow a bad actor in these transactions. So now Iran's oil and gas is just exclusively for China and, and India. Uh, and Europe can't benefit from that. Um, Do you think that was a reason why America reneged on the deal, is that the EU was benefiting from it a lot more than America? Because <laughs> um, when, I, when I look at Iran, I see a lot of European cars, particularly Renault, and I don't see a lot of American machinery knocking about. So the United States, there's a lot number of different questions there. So in like just the short term, like the, I think the JCPOA came into effect in like 2015 or towards the end of 2015. And then it was done from the U.S. perspective by 2018. Even before Trump was in office, I think the United States was much more reticent to take advantage of any of the um, opportunities that the JCPOA provided. I think European country companies were more likely to uh, get involved in the Iranian economy because folks in the U.S. kind of already knew they were going to, there was a strong chance that they would back out of it. So as far as like, was the U.S. resentful over more European involvement in Iran? No, I think really the main thing was Donald Trump really hates Obama and everything about Obama and wanted to Precious legacy. That's so, so the main thing. But also, uh, this is another this is somewhat tinfoil hat of me, but I think also kind of a real dynamic is that since the shale revolution in the United States, the United States has become a massive petroleum producer and wants to keep other petroleum producers from competing. You know, and I think that's mostly what it was was that uh, the United States saw. Uh, them as competition and um, uh, kick them out. How will Ukraine change things? Because from what I've read, it seems to have a massive amount of gas reserves that seem to be in around the regions that Russia would like to control, funnily enough. So if Ukraine are to win the war and join the EU, would America be happy with um, the uh, Europe just replacing Russia with Ukraine when it comes to energy security? I think that Ukraine has some gas reserves, but I don't think that it has, I, I haven't read anywhere that it has enough to fully replace Russian production. Uh, I would be very surprised if that were the case. Um, well, the, it's sort of an interesting, but it's a, it's a more interesting question. And I don't think enough people have put 
the requisite thought into this question. What will the oil and gas industry look like in five years' time, in 10 years' time? I don't think there's any question that anybody's making their 20, 30 goals of 0% or only 20% fossil fuels or whatever, or only, even only 50% fossil fuels. I think that we're, we're going to start making a serious dent on our fossil fuel consumption by 2030, but by serious, I don't mean 100%. I mean like 10 to 15 to 20%. So we're going to continue to use way too many fossil fuels for the remainder of this decade, but we are going to use significantly fewer of these resources. And how that market gets redistributed is a really important question for geopolitics and how the United States is going to allow that market to get redistributed. So there's no question of the United States saying Ukraine is forbidden from uh, doing gas stuff and or this, that, and the other thing. But it's incredibly easy in a developed country to say like, wait, 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 why are we trying to build all these dirty fossil fuels in Ukraine? And I think that uh, U.S. oil companies have tremendous experience in the U.S. context of weaponizing those kinds of instincts. Uh, against nuclear, against rivals. But also, it would appear America is currently ahead. So China subsidizes its renewable sector massively. So it much so it kind of destroyed uh, Germany's solar industry. But um, it's seen that America, you know, for battery production, was behind China. And now with the recent Green Deal, they're now pegging. But it's just left the EU high and dry. Is this, you know, something we're going to see America more and more grow ahead in renewables and leave the EU alone? That's a huge, the, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act is a huge source of tension. And this is yet another example of Europe just being like, hey, hey, don't do that. And the United States being like, whatever. Um, so Macron specifically, and I believe other European folks have spoken out really, really powerfully against the subsidies in the Inflation Reduction Act. These subsidies are tremendously powerful, but they also have a lot of local content restrictions. Uh, so we're only going to be subsidizing NAFTA uh, related. So Mexico can benefit to an extent as well, I believe, but we're only going to be subsidizing North American sources of this, North American sources of this, North American, this, that, and the other thing. And Europe's really angry about that. And yes, absolutely, that's going to... That is going to have costs in Europe. This is another example of just the Europeans being really reliant on these ideas. And I think to some extent, uh, uncomfortably, the sense of superiority they get out of the idea of this rules-based order and, you know, we set the standards and this, that, and the other thing. And the United States is getting a little more interested uh, in some legitimate ways, not just illegitimate military ways, but in legitimate ways about more serious competition with China. And that means that the United States is going to stop. Countries only operate worldwide free markets and everything when they are incredibly dominant at everything. The United States, I still maintain, is incredibly dominant at most things, but we are now transitioning into a period where it's like, mm, this may not be the case always, so we need to do more things that benefit us primarily. And I think that Europe will continue to be hurt by this. Um, so yeah, I mean, let's just sort of run through how things went. 2003, 
you've got Germany, you've got uh, France and Russia banding together against the U.S. invasion of Iraq, the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Uh, is the catacly exactly the cataclysmic failure that they predicted? Um, unfortunately, France and Britain specifically, and I think this is one of the major downfalls here, is that the United States provides a lot of opportunities to look superior to other countries. And Europe likes to take advantage of those opportunities. Uh, this is in somewhat more vague ways, like there's a lot of just sort of finger wagging that Europe and the United States get together to do over human rights, over climate, over, you know, more things during Democratic administrations than during Republican administrations. But there's a lot of finger wagging and, and sort of permanent, oh, no, 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 we're better than you and we're going to tell you how to do things. But and that's a little imperial. But, uh, and this is, this is a little, this is probably the clearest act of European suicide over the past 20 years, uh, committed by David Cameron and, uh, Nicolas Sarkozy. Um, and that was the choice to endorse the U S invasion of Libya, uh, to go beyond that, to, 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 uh, uh, the, the, the classic quote, uh, is that the, uh, Obama led from behind in Libya or something like that, which is, I think. Uh, I think a misrepresentation. I don't think that France and Britain had the wherewithal to take out uh, Libya themselves. I think they needed the United States doing a lot of work that has not been as fully publicized. I think also drones were used a lot, and America was sort of um, uh, pioneers of that technology at the time. But that specific act, uh, destroying Libya uh, and creating the refugee crisis uh, by doing that, uh, in addition uh, to the, the thing in Syria, it was, was truly one of the most suicidal acts. Uh, not only did it help to convince Russia that NATO and NATO had no independent existence beyond U.S. militarism, uh, it also created the refugee crisis that led to Brexit. Um, it created the refugee crisis that um, took an already um, hamstrung EU after the 2008 financial crisis and added a whole nother uh, pile of uh, dimension of destruction. And I don't think it's, it's that easy to sort of one-to-one -one connect the refugee crisis to the economic doldrums of Europe. Uh, but it is certainly a heavy contributor and just that general level of crisis, the general level of stasis at the institutional level in the European Union. They haven't really, I think there were in the, in the teens, there were not in the teens, in the, in the aughts, there was a, a number of attempts to reformulate the EU, to, you know, bring about an ever closer union to maybe resolve. Well, that some was of a the, period where it was doing very well. So from about 2001 to 2008. It's yeah. growing um, at a fantastic rate and then overtakes America at a point. But it's seen that um, while America weirdly seemed to invest in itself more, it caused a lot of austerity in the EU, which then meant uh, a lot of stagnation. Yeah. Uh, so since 2008, it's, it's, the, the golden years of the EU were brief and they were at least 15 years ago. It's the 2008 financial crisis, which was US generated. It was the refugee crisis, which was U.S. generated and also uh, Sarkozy and Cameron generated. And of course, we, we can't leave out Vladimir Putin, who really resolutely failed 
to take advantage of what Merkel and uh, the rest of the EU were offering, which was uh, an actual closer participation. The problem here is that because I think in part, this is the more broader problem with the EU, is that need to sort of band together with the United States and be better than with everybody, especially Russia, um, but also with the rest of the world, like that need to bandwagon with the United States on most issues um, made Putin feel like he could never actually fully get an alliance or even a, a participation of equals with, with the EU. Um, and uh, eventually he gave up and decided to act like a bloodthirsty savage. And, Do you think uh, it not proves that running Russia is more complicated than running the EU? Because I feel like Putin's more of like a kind of ringleader trying to keep a lot of powerful oligarchs in line and he can only do so much without having to do something crazy like invade Ukraine. That's a very strong statement. Uh, running the EU, I mean, at least Russia has a currency, has its own currency and its own central bank that functions. I mean, it's an interesting quote, like, how well is the EU running? Because um, I think, well, you know, we maybe feed into our own propaganda on Russia, but it could just be a lot weaker than we all imagine. You know, the EU is very open. You can just read uh, huge amounts of information on, you know, all <laughs> the different tit-for-tat and arguments that go on. But, you know, it's not so much easy to, you know, Russia isn't quite the, an open book. And like, yep. his, I know I've said it before, but his popularities were the lowest they've ever been. And then also, as I talked about, the gas as well. And then <laughs> they invade Ukraine and then he's more popular <laughs> than ever. Yeah, it's a confusing, uh, Russia is a very confusing place, but uh, I just think of them as just, Russia and the EU are just such different classes of entities. I mean, they are, they are completely different animals. Russia has a lot of the basics of a functioning state that the EU still lacks and lacks to its detriment. Uh, I think that but obviously, you know, governing Russia, I think, I think, I think your statement makes sense on some levels because governing Russia is like, yeah, it's, it's a, yeah, it's like some kind of, it, it, it's, it's like running a gang and to some extent that's, you don't get voted out and live in a lovely house in the country. Like you, you're either in charge or you're thrown out a window. Well, I don't know. Gorbachev uh, died very, very sadly, but, uh, but peacefully, I, I think that the sort of I think people really underestimate the extent to which Russia as a gangster state is a creation of the U.S. order. Um, I think this is part, this isn't exactly about the EU's struggle for independence from the United States, but it is, it is fundamental to Russia's dilemma is that the United States has a ton of diplomats and has a ton of folks who are like, hey, we're all on the same side here. We're just trying to make the world work. Come on down to the UN and we're going to figure things out. Come on down to the WTO. We're gonna, I mean, Russia stayed out of the WTO for a very, very long time, but I think did finally join a, a couple of years before uh, invading Ukraine. Uh, you know, we're the US. Come on down. We're all be pals. Yeah, we're going to destroy Iraq. You don't like that? F you. <laughs> oh, Syria, that, that country, the only one that's that's been friendly to you for the past 40 years, your only external base, Russia? Well, uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna destroy Syria. Wait, why don't you wanna do deals with us? What what how could you possibly be threatened by Ukraine uh wanting to do deals with us? You know, just like 
and that that's the and I don't think uh, I'm not in no way am I attempting to justify what Russia has done to Ukraine, but I just think there's this. Uh, we've got another episode talking about Robert Kagan, and it's just who's a very influential foreign policy commentator, and it's just complete inability to imagine what it must be like to be on the other side of the table from the United States for anything. And I think Russia is a country that tried many, many times to be like, yeah, yeah, well, oh, the, the NATO partnership for peace. I, I, I mean, we don't like NATO expanding, but we want to sit at the table with you and Oh, gee, invade Libya. Well, as long as you promise you're not going to overthrow this guy, I, I guess we'll sit at the table with you for this. And they just get slapped in the face over and over and over again and uh, watch their country, which was, you know, superpower in 1989, uh, bankrupt joke by 1999, uh, following a lot of U.S. economic advice. And yeah, they, they go with a thug. Um, because a thug made them feel a little bit better about themselves and made them feel like, well, at least we've got a strong guy at the table uh, when uh, the United States keeps pooping in our mouths. Really, really, really failed for Russia. It really, really, really failed for those in Europe who were hoping to have a little more sovereignty, a little more independence from the United States. Yes, Russia has agency. Putin is a bad man, this, that, and the other thing, but but we really don't reckon with how large a role uh, we played in the creation of Vladimir Putin. Do you think America is very anti an EU army? Yes. I think That's we are good. very anti an EU. Yes. Yeah, I think that's theoretically the EU spends more on military than America, but because they're also fragmented, it's kind of not really as part anywhere nearly as powerful. As it should be, I don't. I don't. I, I'd be. I'd question on what metric uh, the the EU uh, spends more on the military than the United States does. Uh, I think uh, by GDP reckoning, uh, I think only Poland and the Baltics do, uh, for some somewhat obvious reasons. Uh, I think you could probably make a case that uh, proportionally paying on infantry types, a lot of U.S. spending is just. Uh, trillions of dollars handed over to Lockheed Martin to or other uh, other such like companies to develop stuff and do mergers and acquisitions and whatnot. Uh, but uh, I'm sure you could make a, a, a calculation that said that the EU paid more. But I, I think the the general sense, and I don't think it's an incorrect general sense, is that that's not entirely accurate. So remember that was a uh, one of the side notes for Brexit was oh you don't want an EU army. Which I could see, you know, some funding for Brexit possibly coming from Russia, because that's probably something they're not keen on either. But how much of uh, Brexit do you think was uh, America funded? I don't think the United States wanted Brexit because we saw Britain in the EU as a way to control the EU and to keep the EU from going in any particularly independent direction yes i don't think I, I think i think brexit was a was an unpleasant surprise to washington dc as well i don't think we intended that to happen uh i because i know officially obama was against um the uk leaving and i, I think most aspects of the u.s political uh, sphere were against that that the eu army 
means less opportunities for the U.S. Army. It means fewer opportunities for the for the U.S. Army, and that is something that Washington D.C. will never be a fan of. I think the U.S. taxpayer should be a fan of that. I think, uh, and you'll find people throughout Washington D.C. who will say, "Of course, of course, the EU must contribute more. Must contribute more." Duh, 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 duh. That's the that's the boilerplate. That's what every president says. Um, but there's never any consequences. There's never any uh, real thought of. There's never any like real thought of making an ultimatum or saying by a certain date or this that. Blah, blah, blah. It's it's pretty clear that uh, despite what they say, most aspects of the U.S. political scene are perfectly content to continue uh, being in most military in military control of of Europe. I think it, Frontex. I think is I need I haven't looked into it recently, but I remember looking into it a couple of years back. Uh, is that Frontex is the essentially European border authority, uh, and I, I kind of feel like. There's the the a stealth embryo of a European uh, military being being born there, uh, and I think that uh, sadly, uh, horrifically, I think that um, pushing migrants away from the EU is going to become a much more industrial, uh, large scale thing uh, in the coming decades, uh, and that will provide scope for a real European military to develop, which is depressing. So yeah, she'll not be surprised to hear. I, th I think it was saying the EU spends about, you know, less than America, but sort of roughly around China. But it's not really as good as it could be because it's so fragmented. Ugh. So that's one of the arguments for it. But uh, I think some neutral EU countries may also be a, a thorn in its side. Mm. Yeah, uh, the EU, I don't have, I don't, I'm not particularly expectant of uh, massive increases in EU military budgets. There was a lot of talk in 2022 uh, as the Zeitungwende in Germany, uh, this big Olaf Scholz gave a big speech and we're going to spend 100 billion euros on defense and uh, a year and a half after that, it uh, does not appear to be apparent. They mostly just bought, uh, what, F-35s? Yes, and that's a really good way. That's a really good way to get Washington, D.C. to not care about you not spending <laughs> money on anything else, which is probably pretty strategic. Uh, so I think with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it became pretty clear uh, that the hope of a common European home between Russia and the rest of the European countries uh, was pretty much over. Uh, this is at least for a decade or so to come. There is no real hope of reconciliation between Russia and Europe, I believe. I still believe, uh, I made a video years ago, that uh, Russia will inevitably find its way uh, into uh, alignment with uh, Europe. But by that point, uh, I think it'll be a sort of desperate attempt to keep will up. Will that still be Russia as, you know, the geographic landmass we know it today, or will it have fragmented at that point and lost a lot of its Asian territory? That's a horrifying, horrifying, horrifying set of questions there. Uh, what's interesting is that uh, as China's population peaks, a lot of things that I was concerned about were, oh, well, you know, look at all that vast empty land and China's no one to fill it. I find that a little less credible than I used to um, as uh, China. China's population is speaking. Uh, and Russia does, after all, still have nukes. Um, and I think has been quite clear 
about being quite aggressive with those should China choose to. Um, though, who knows, when China gets to a point where it has nuclear parity with Russia, which won't happen in the next 15 years, but could happen in the next 25, uh, that could be a different set of calculations, who's to say. But I do think that Russia will eventually end up uh, aligned with the EU as just sort of a how do we compete with the American, Chinese, and Indian titans. Um, and it, but it's just, it is just sort of sad that there was this... People have been thinking about that thought since the 90s and putting things in train to make that happen. That's what Angela Merkel was trying to do. That's what the folks who started building out the, the energy connections between Western Europe and the Soviet Union in the 80s were trying to do. And um, uh, that's all kind of in tatters. And it's what they're eventually going to have to do. Uh, Russia's sort of destiny is with the EU sort of banding together as one of the largest blocks. But I think that'll be definitely uh, post-Vladimir Putin. Oh, no question that's a post-Putin thing at this point. Uh, but Putin, Putin's in his 70s now, right? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's... Uh, what do you think Europe should do to maximize independence without completely upsetting America? I know it's controversial, but man, I, the, those just the easiest thing would be to bring those German nuclear plants back online. I mean, my God, uh, I, I know it's it's becoming sort of a right wing trope, but you know that's that thing. But yeah, no, the nuclear shutting down all their nuclear plants is just another. It's it's a uh, let's go. You're just gonna get that energy from Texas, um, and that's that is that that would be that's a short term thing. Um, I'm not good at talking about money and finance stuff uh, without spending the hour before talking prepping on money and finance <laughs> stuff, uh, which I think I did with a couple episodes in recent weeks. Uh, but I do think that Europe has to get its financial house in order. I think there was a lot of excitement during COVID where it seemed like finally Northern Europe was willing to do some transfer payments and, and treat uh, Southern Europe as if more as if it were in the same country or what have you. But I think there's a lot of central banking and just general policy, centralization policy that the EU has to figure out. Um, and I know that the, the characteristics of the EU make those kinds of politics and decisions very difficult. I appreciate that. But uh, they, they have to be sorted out if the EU is going to be a viable competitor on the world stage. Uh, if it's ever going to be able to get out from under the United States. Thank you very much for listening and hope to hear you next time. The More Freedom Foundation is also available on YouTube and TikTok. Rob's Twitter is RobOLaw and he's also written a book called Avoiding the British Empire. What it was and how the US can do better. And music provided by Kevin MacLeod. <laughs>